he made the point that the modern novel tells us a lot about the human mind, but tells us nothing about the soul. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Fiorella De Maria. She's a Maltese author raised in England who studied English literature and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University. She has written over 10 books, including her historical fiction work, Poor Banished Children. Her latest in the Father Gabriel Mystery series is being released with Ignatius Press in April 2022. You can find all her work at FiorellaDeMaria.com. I'm so excited to have Fiorella De Maria on the show today. And Fiorella, would you like to share some literature with us? I would love to. I, I had a little think about something I've read that has really inspired me. And probably the passage in fiction that has most inspired me is quite near the end of Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory. And it's the final moment when the priest wakes up on the morning of his execution. When he woke up, it was dawn. He woke with a huge feeling of hope, which suddenly and completely left him at the first sight of the prison yard. It was the morning of his death. He crouched on the floor with the empty brandy flask in his hand, trying to remember an act of contrition. Oh God, I'm sorry and beg pardon for my sins, crucified, worthy of thy dreadful punishments. He was confused. His mind was on other things. It was not the good death for which one always prayed. He caught sight of his own shadow on the cell wall. It had a look of surprise and grotesque unimportance. What a fool he had been to think that he was strong enough to stay when others fled. What an impossible fellow I am, he thought, and how useless. I have done nothing for anybody. I might just as well have never lived. His parents were dead. Soon he wouldn't even be a memory. Perhaps, after all, he wasn't really hell-worthy. Tears poured down his face. He was not at the moment afraid of damnation. Even the fear of pain was in the background. He felt only an immense disappointment, because he had to go to God empty-handed, with nothing done at all. It seemed to him, at that moment, that it would have been quite easy to have been a saint. It would only have needed a little self-restraint and a little courage. He felt like someone who had missed happiness by seconds at an appointed place. He knew now that at the end there was only one thing that counted, to be a saint. Mm. He just hits the nail on the head there, doesn't he? Absolutely. It still chokes me all these years later reading it again. 
it's it's been several years since I've read that book, and I'm so grateful that you've brought it on the show because the way that Graham Greene is so masterful with his English, but not just the verbiage, but it just hits to the heart of who we are. Yeah, it's it. It just seemed so extraordinary to me when the first time I read it as a teenager, I'd grown up with some beautiful popular piety in the sort of Latin culture I come from, lots of saints. I had a picture of Saint Therese of Lisieux looking down at me from one wall and Saint Dominic Savio from another, rather pastel shades um, pictures, if you could imagine, lots of roses. And really reading the power and the glory and seeing the terrible sinner who makes such a mess of his life make that perfect act of contrition at the end. It just it moved me so much. And just really it it really made me think in a way that I'd never I'd never really been challenged before. Mm. That you had seen, like you talked about, the the popular piety. Yeah. But the soul raking recognition of our sinfulness. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> You know, stripped of all the sentimentality and all the all the coziness, I suppose, of of the the quite um, I suppose the the quite easy Catholicism with which I'd grown up. But you know, the saints I'd I'd always read about and known about were quite were, were people who had had huge challenges. I mean, growing up in England as an immigrant, I read a lot about the recusants, of course, who had this incredible history of heroism. But what I'd never really come across is the saint who began as a sinner and the the reminder that, well, all saints are sinners who become saints and that the Holy Spirit never leaves them in the end. That whiskey priest, who we don't even know his name in the book, he's never named, at his darkest moment, he is not left alone, that the Holy Spirit touches him, even at that moment of absolute desolation. Mm. Well, and even just the desire to make an act of contrition in mm. itself is a grace. Yes. The, the desire yeah. for saintliness is a grace. Like, oh. And the, and the irony is he doesn't realize, he doesn't actually realize his own innocence, where he's stumbling over the words of the act of contrition. Like, it doesn't matter, you're trying to say it. <laughs> God, right. God hears you. Oh, I I didn't read it as a teenager. I read it as an adult who I'm a, I'm a revert to the faith, okay. and so yeah, I can identify with that sinner part pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think the fact is we all can because everyone has to go through that struggle. And obviously, what happens to the priest in the Power and the Glory is extremely dramatic and. You know, hopefully, you know, God willing, we won't be tested like that. And yet we have all had situations where we have not been proud of the way we have behaved. We've all had to go through that that valley of, of despondency. And sometimes we need to be reminded that it's okay, that we can get there. You know, with God's grace, we can get there. Well, and that's that's what I love about in the Mass, mea culpa, mea culpa, mm. mea maxima culpa, that it is through our fault. And yet, we come together and say those things to do something different, to change ourselves, to constantly be converted to Christ. Yeah. I'm thinking. 
I've thrown you off course now. <laughs> no, you <laughs> haven't thrown me off at all. I just, I'm, I'm constantly one of these people that has ideas rolling around in my head. And I'm just, there's so much in the passage that you read that it's his contrition, it's his innocence. But the other thing that's there is, there's two other things I see in it that he truly gets to see how grotesque his sin has been. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, he, he sees himself for who he really is. I mean, that's, the, that's real wisdom. And of course, the other thing that the reader knows, but that the priest never knows, is he believes he has done no good in the world. He actually said, it would have been better if I'd never been born. It would have made no difference. My parents are dead. There's no one even to remember. And yet, of course, what you do discover through the novel is that his life touched other people without him even knowing it. So, in fact, he has witnessed to the gospel even in spite of himself. I've known people within my own life where if you just took the surface look, it would look as if their life was a waste and that it had no value. Um, and it, and I'm thinking of someone who did struggle with addiction, who did struggle with alcoholism specifically. And then when this person died, amongst their meager and messy belongings, there was a Bible. Mm. And I look at all of these psalms of begging for God's help and God's forgiveness messily highlighted in this Bible and just isn't isn't this really what we're all doing we're just messily like a child with a crayon yes <laughs> trying to draw trying to draw out who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to do God's work in the world yeah absolutely but we can't do it without his guidance and oh you picked such a powerful piece that I'm just sitting here like mellowing at it like a tea bag, drawing more and more out of it. So you have to forgive me for being a little stupefied. But I mean, I've drawn on that sense in my own writing that the fear, uh, the fear of not being good enough and the, you know, the fact the way we judge ourselves against the way God judges us. Um, the priest in Poor Banished Children mm. has the terrible sense that he's made a horrific sacrifice for no good reason, that it will make no difference. And then near the end of the book, when Warada is forced to make a terrible decision, a terrible choice that will almost certainly cost her her life, that is what she remembers. She remembers yes. what he did. So in fact, he sowed a seed without knowing it. It's just that he will never know the impact that had. Well, and none of us do. I read, I've read a few of your books. I read one of your Father Gabriel mysteries, and I did read Poor Banished Children, and I also read Abolition of Women, which is nonfiction. But I have to say that with Poor Banished Children, I do see a similar theme, and it, you know, centering around this idea of forgiveness. And can God really forgive? Does he truly desire to forgive and our salvation. I love stories about little people, quote unquote. <laughs> and yeah. this absolutely was this this single soul, this woman who who goes through a horrific life. And yet 
there's value and there's power and there's goodness. What do you think drew you to write a book like Poor Banished Children, this historical fiction that takes place on the Barbary Coast? I always wanted to write a book set in those times because it's so much part of my own heritage. I'm from slave ancestry myself. And it's the, the, the disaster of slavery for the Maltese people is something that I was always aware of. I grew up on stories of brides being snatched from their bedchambers by pirates in the middle of the night. And, and it's, it's a huge, it's a huge part of the folklore. And that's true of the whole of the Mediterranean basin. Those Barbary raids occurred all around that coast, all the way as far as Ireland, even as far as Baltimore and up to Iceland and Reykjavik. They, they went all over. Once they were able to na- navigate the Atlantic, the Barbary pirates went all over the place. So this is, in fact, something that has touched many countries, but it was very much part of my own heritage. But I didn't feel able as a young writer to really do it justice. I felt it was too big a subject that I just needed a bit of experience. So I wrote a couple of novels before I wrote Poor Banished Children so that I'd get the experience of just telling a story before I could really embark upon it. Well, and how how long would you consider yourself to have been a storyteller? Oh, always. Um, I think uh, I've I've been wanting to be a writer since I was about seven. Um, I would pay good money not to see anything I wrote at the age of seven. But you have to start somewhere, don't you? You know, um, you have to scribble away writing stories about mice and whatever. Um, and that was always what I wanted to do. Um, I wrote the manuscript to my first published novel when I was 21. It was the summer I graduated. I just locked myself away and wrote for six weeks and wrote the first draft. Every book since then has taken a bit longer because I didn't have children when I wrote my first, <laughs> my first <laughs> manuscript. And it, it just, the process has gone a bit longer every single time. And also Poor Banished Children, because it is a historical novel set in a, a period where there is not a great deal of information readily available. There aren't many accounts, for example, because very few of those women ever escaped. Uh, it took me more like two years because I needed to do a year of research and then a year of writing. Yeah, I can say that I can see that children could slow down the production of a novel. It is possible. But they give you so much life experience for material. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, And I think, in fact, they give a certain motivation as well. Um, I, I have less time to write now, but I do write a lot more efficiently because I know I've got that much time. And so... I throw myself in and I have all sorts of techniques I use to make sure I can hit the ground running every day when I start writing. Oh, I would love to hear some of these techniques because I could probably use them myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's little things like, for example, I never stop writing at the end of a chapter. Um, I don't like to, to end at a close. I will, If I do get to the end of a chapter and I'm sort of needing to stop, I'll write at least the first paragraph of the next chapter because it's just a lot easier to throw yourself into the middle of a story than to have to start. Um, it's always like it's like taking the first step in a journey, but it happens, I find, with every chapter. I just I need to obviously not be in a place where I can't remember what I was writing about, but where I can just 
say, right, oh, there's a conversation about to start or whatever, and I can just throw myself in. Because once you start writing, then it all starts to flow quite quickly. So for me, that really helps. Um, but also just learning to write in snatches. Quite often, I will think through a scene while I'm doing the ironing or something, and then put it to paper when I've got some quiet time. But I'll make sure I've already got the scene thought through before I start writing, because if I sit down and then have to think about it and then write it down, then that's possibly by the time I've worked it out, I won't have put pen to paper. The time will be up. Mm. Wait, you mean that time can sometimes be limited when you have a family? Mm, Funny, yes. (laughs) And I don't get to write in sort of quiet, idyllic locations with a roaring fire and the door locked, you know, right at the side of the ice rink or, um, <laughs> you know, in, in the back of the car. <laughs> so there's, there's nothing idyllic about this. It's not quite as I imagined being a writer would be when I was a student. Well, and that's the funny thing about it is we get all of these you know, images of what it would mean to be an author. And you think of Ernest Hemingway, you know, locking himself away or traveling around the world. And it's like, no, you're scrambling and you might make it to a diner to write. Possibly if you're you're lucky. Yes. Right. Um, (laughs) And also this idea of it, you know, that you'd have to sort of sit there getting the muse. You know, I have have books to write. I have a job to do. Um, I set myself targets. I have to write a certain number of words a day. Um, And that stops writer's block setting in. And I may not like the thousand words. I may cut a lot of them the next day. But, you know, I can't wait for the muse to visit. I have to go and grab the muse by the scruff of the neck or I'll never get it done. (laughs) And like you said, you've got things to do. But there's power in that. There's power in that that you're you're forced to focus, developing discipline, things like that. Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, and and also you have to set goals and think. Well, what is it? Right, what am I working on now? Um, am I going to get this Father Gabriel book finished? Um, I've got quite a few different projects on the go at any one time. So it's a question of saying, right, I've, I need to get this finished by Easter, or I need to get this done by the summer with the the school holidays start in July, so I've absolutely got to get this manuscript off by then. You know, it's it's a question of fitting it around what your children are doing, but it does stop it does stop everything dragging out because they always say that work spreads out to fit in, you know, fill up all the available time. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. So if you don't mind me asking, how many novels did you write before you had a family versus since you've started your family? I only published one before I had a family because it took me, I mean, I wrote it when I was 21, but it took me four years to get it published. And I'm very aware that for aspiring writers, the the step, that first step on the ladder to getting published can be exhausting and very, very time consuming. It took me a lot longer to get published than to write the thing. But my, my second novel, I already had one child and... Yes, ever since then, I, I've been fitting, fitting having children around, around writing and vice versa. And but you know, th- there's also pockets of time where it's easier than others. When you've got very young children, you've got babies, it's quite difficult to write because, frankly, you're exhausted. Whereas when your children are a little bit older, they're at school, you have a bit more space as well. You can, you've got a bit more reliable time, I suppose. Uh, so it, you know, it's constantly changing. Well, I know what I did when I had my first is I wasn't writing yet. 
And I still have nothing published. I'm still working on my first finished novel. But what I did do when I had my first, so I just had one and I was nursing, I read Les Mis. Wow. I read Les Mis <laughs> unabridged. Mm-hmm. I was able to still use my mind quite a bit, even though my body was pretty tied up. And yes. It's a good novel, and it certainly keeps you busy. Uh, oh, it does. It does. And and that's the thing I was going to ask you is you write in so many different genres, which I find just awesome. So if you could tell us a little bit about each genre that you write in and kind of what what is your quote unquote muse for each one of those, or if it's all the same, just ideas. Well, most of my books fall broadly within historical fiction. I mean, in that most of my books, apart from Do No Harm, I think, yes, apart from Do No Harm, they're all set in the past. But as you say, there are different genres and that some are literary fiction, some are detective or crime fiction. I've ventured into the horror genre, which I never imagined I would do. This is a complete departure for me. It's funny how you can't plan you can't plan the way it's all going to go. Writing's quite an adventure. And I suppose the the unifying feature is the the Catholic themes and the the historical background. But really with with my standalone novels, they usually start with a, a single idea. You know, what if that happened? Or, you know, with Poor Banished Children, I wanted to write about the slave trade. Um, with Dangerous Innocence, I just, Most Dangerous Innocence, I, w- I thought, well, what would happen? And there, there are lots of boarding school stories in Britain. It's a very, very popular genre. Enid Blyton, and it started off with Angela Brazil. It's had a bit of a lease of life with Harry Potter, which is essentially a boarding school story with broomsticks. Um, and it's something you know you grow up with girls particularly grow up reading and they're always involving you know some girl thwarting an enemy you know whilst playing netball and being a jolly good a jolly good egg um and and doing her homework on time and i just thought well what would happen if a girl really was in pursuit of a spy whilst she was at school it just started that that one question and then the whole story just built around it so yes it starts with a single idea or a single character who I think might be fun to develop. Mm. Well, and I have to say, having read Poor Banished Children, I thought that the book was incredibly timely because even though it's historical fiction in a discussion of slave trade, I I know you write a lot about women's issues around the world. And human trafficking is a reality yeah, amongst absolutely. men and women, but primarily women in this time. And how different do you think that victims of modern trafficking that they're how different do you think their experience would be from the historical perspective well i think on one level not at all different in that they are being sold their rights are being taken away from them their dignity is being stolen and it's all happening very invisibly but with the uh, with the silent blessing of many people in the establishment um, a lot of modern day trafficking victims have access, for example, to health care. So there are people who are seeing them who are in a position to help, but either don't because they're unwilling to get involved or because they don't pick up the signs that the person they're dealing with is in danger. I've been to workshops by charities who try to get girls and women out of trafficking who try to educate doctors in particular to see the signs to see the warning signs to see you know, to 
um, teach the police how to deal with the very delicate situation where in many cases you have trafficking victims who are illegal immigrants who are frightened of the police and don't want to talk to them. How you deal with these very, very complex situations. And the, there were two really, there were two things that made me think I have to write this book now in this particular time. One was that you had in Britain at the time I started writing it, the Wilberforce anniversary. You had it was the anniversary of William Wilberforce, who was the great abolitionist in Britain, who campaigned tirelessly for much of his parliamentary career to end the slave trade within the British Empire and only succeeded in doing so quite close to the end of his life. I was aware because of my own background that slavery has touched pretty much every culture in the world, one way, either as traders or as the traded. And I felt it was the story of my own people's tragedy in terms of their own journey into slavery had not really been told. And I wanted to be able to tell it. But it was also this issue of modern trafficking. It was realizing that modern slavery was going on under our noses, that there are more people in slavery or in some form of slavery today than in the 19th century. And so so little understanding about it. And in fact, fortuitously, there was a, there's a seminary quite near to where I lived. Sadly, it's closed now, but they had a magazine. In one of their issues, they had an interview with a nun who ran a charity rescuing girls from these situations. They had these hostels and these safe houses all over London and Manchester, so the, the northern cities. And that was where I really learned a lot. And my eyes were open to what was going on now and realizing the level of ignorance there is about it. So few people even know it's happening. And I could see very strong parallels. As did I, as I was reading it. And I've been involved just on the periphery of some local charities that help do that exact same thing, provide safe houses, provide families for these girls who are in grave, mortal danger, spiritual danger, the whole the whole package. And I'm grateful that your book sheds light on what slavery is. And the other thing that it does, and I can't speak for British culture, but I can speak for American culture, you know, there's this whole glorified view of piracy. Oh, yes. Yes. It's Jack Sparrow's fault. Well, and even before that, but yes, you know, mm, that. Sure. but I do think that Jack Sparrow is probably pretty key in that movement. But I see, you know, coming out of British television and American television, you know, the, kind of perpetuating this idea of it's just a body fun time. Yeah. And it's and it, not. Absolutely. And it infuriated me because it's a huge thing uh, in Britain, particularly in the West Country, where you did have, well, it was really smugglers. There's quite a, a big confusion in a lot of people's minds between pirates and smugglers because you had the Atlantic smuggling trade. You know, um, in the south of England, a lot of coves and caverns, and it, which made it very easy for little boats to hide. So there was a huge, um, there's a huge smuggling industry. But I'd be writing poor banished children, and my children would be going to pirate parties. You know, mm-hmm. with, with with knotted handkerchiefs and patches over their eye, going "Ooh, are we harties?" and all this. You know, and I just found it maddening. But there is a disnification of the of piracy where it, they're treated like lovable rogues. 
really, who were, you know, anti-establishment against the beastly East India Company, you know, and in reality, they were murderers. They pillaged villages, they stole women from their families, they committed so much harm. And I really did want to push that to, to counter that narrative that piracy was never anything to laugh at. Mm-hmm. And and I do think it is a powerful differentiation that there can be a difference between smuggling and mm-hmm. outright piracy, especially piracy related to the trade of human persons. Yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, and the other thing I wanted to thank you for is I will be completely honest of I had no real knowledge of any type of Maltese history or Maltese culture at all prior to reading your book. And I was just so grateful to learn about this Mediterranean culture that doesn't get a lot of press time. No, <laughs> I don't know um, how many Maltese authors there are, but we're in a bit short supply. There aren't many of us, there aren't many Maltese, let's face it. And it, we have a very rich heritage, 7,000 years of history um, from a tiny island. And it's something I love to write about because I just think it's so fascinating. And I'm blessed to have that that heritage to draw on. And my family history is tied up very much with that. You know, I I think we're quite a nation of storytellers, really. My nonna used to tell me stories about her childhood in America and uh, Malta during the war. And, you know, we we communicated through storytelling. Well, and isn't that just the human experience? That's one mm. of the reasons I started doing this podcast is I feel like stories matter. Yeah. But in the soundbite culture that we live in right now, stories are almost losing their value because they take our attention, but it's rapt attention and it makes us think big ideas and all this. And it just, it saddens me that we've, we've stopped believing that stories matter. And I'm like, oh, but they do. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we are, it's so inherent to to who we are as human beings. If you think about it, if you go right back to the dawn of time, if you see a cave painting, that is somebody telling a story. People sat around the campfire and they told stories and stories were passed from generation to generation. It's how people record their own history. It's incredibly important in terms of exploring ideas. Jesus was a storyteller. He taught through parables and it, it's it's something it's known, you know, teachers know that if they tell a story, it will stick in a child's mind. Um, and we we live within a story. We live within a narrative. And part of what I feel the Catholic writer's vocation is, is to challenge the narrative and to recast the narrative because we, we don't even realize sometimes we're living in one. Go a little deeper on that for me. How do you think that the modern fiction writer accomplishes that? Well, I think many modern fiction writers don't because I think because of pressure to please publishers, to get sales, to say the right thing, the fear of being cancelled, I think the majority of modern writers simply feed into a well-worn narrative because it is safe. They will create characters who are palatable. They will create scenarios that are very familiar. They will not challenge any kind of narrative because they don't want to be stopped from writing. I mean, no writer wants to find himself cancelled and without an audience. And 
I'm blessed to have a publisher who isn't particularly bothered by <laughs> cancel culture and is, is actually allows me to to write things that do challenge the narrative and are a bit countercultural. But I think you start by reminding people that we all have a personal history, we have a personal story, we live within a, a national story, a cultural story. The fact that I am Maltese will have had an impact on the way I see myself in the world. Um, your own background will have had exactly that um, that effect on you. And the stories you learnt about your country as a child will feed into your sense of your place in the world. I think a truly a truly skilled writer by writing a spinning a good yarn because first of all first and foremost you should be writing a good story can maybe challenge that and say but what is the real story um, I mean a, a priest once said to me we were talking about about writing he writes a blog in, not novels but he's got an interest in literature and he made the point that the modern novel tells us a lot about the human mind but tells us nothing about the soul Mm. And it made me feel that if a Catholic writer has a job to do, then maybe it is to talk about the soul, just to remind people that they have a soul. Mm. And that's that's something that's begging to be cancelled in a post post modern culture for yeah. sure. And but but yet I feel, you know, we are inherently spiritual beings, and even people who think that they aren't are actually striving for the truth and are looking for God. They may be looking for for God in the wrong places. But I think if there is a very strong spiritual element within a book, it can be appealing, even if the person doesn't entirely know why. And perhaps that's one of the draws, even though I'm not necessarily recommending it as a genre, but why like paranormal Mm. And things like that are such popular genres, even in the secular world, that these are popular genres. And even if they're not pointing to the human soul and our salvation and things like that, that it's still pointing to something that cannot be seen. Absolutely. And I think and the paranormal, that, that whole the horror genre and the gothic genre, whatever you want to call it, it's so huge. I think it is for that reason, because people do have a sense there is something beyond the here and now that they're seeing. And Certainly, having written a horror horror genre novel, I've been asked so many times, "What on earth is a Catholic girl doing writing in this genre?" But Catholic girls should be women should be writing in this genre because we know how to navigate our way around it and through it because we have an innate understanding of the supernatural. We know about you know we acknowledge the existence of the demonic, um, but we also acknowledge the communion of saints and the grace of God. And we know that we don't fight these monsters alone without armor. So mm. absolutely, we should be writing in this genre. I agree. And I know Eleanor Borg-Nicholson agrees with you as well. Yes. <laughs> I, I should jolly well hope she would. Yes, <laughs> And I, I love Eleanor's books, uh, the, the Bloody Habit. I, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. And I, I love the fact that we are seeing Catholic writers exploring this genre and maybe reclaiming it. But the same is also true of crime fiction, because in the end, it is about the battle between good and evil and the, the search for truth. And People want truth and they want justice. And the beauty of a crime novel is that is exactly what happens. Some terrible crime occurs which upsets the natural order. There is someone whose role it is, whether he's a policeman or an amateur detective, to seek out the truth and put together the puzzle and 
justice should be done and the natural order restored. It's what we all Mm -hmm. seek. Well, and I even see a little bit of that, not in the detective role or anything, but even in Graham Greene's book, The Whiskey Priest is seeking Mm. some sort of justice. He's seeking some sort of revelation of truth and healing of the wound of his own existence and the things that he perceives as his his sinful life. Yes, absolutely. You know, he knows he has a lot to account for, but he also chose to stay when other priests were fleeing the country and other prominent Catholics were fleeing the country. And he's angered with himself towards the end because he thinks, why did I think I'd be able to do this? Why did I think I'd be able to be strong enough? This was vanity, you know. And yet there was obviously some instinct in him that was to remain true to his vocation, even having broken his vows, even having led really quite a dissolute life. When it came to it, he, he makes that choice twice. First of all, by, by remaining in the country, the fact that he's in the country at all during the novel, but then at the end, when he has that final chance to escape, he doesn't take that, uh, that chance. So he, in fact, he is, he is receiving the grace to become a martyr, even as he's struggling against it and even as he's preoccupied with his own inadequacies. Mm. Well, and that he never, like you were just saying about the gothic genre, he never battled these demons alone, even his own personal demons. Absolutely. And and he had an awareness. Um, you see, if you think about the, the power and the glory, because um, confession comes into my own books a lot, a confession and judgment. It's a theme that runs through a lot of my writing because I have been hugely influenced by Green. But if you think of the confessional sequences that are peppered throughout the power and the glory, the good confessions and the bad confessions, the the priest, the, the the priest bursting into tears because he's exhausted and he doesn't want to hear anybody's confessions, thank you very much, and this being misinterpreted by the villagers. Oh, look at this holy priest who is crying, weeping for your sins. You must all come to confession. Everyone, oh, out of your no. houses, you must all come. You know, it's, it's actually very, very funny. I remember trying to explain to my atheist tutor when I was a student why this is, for a Catholic, this is such a funny scene, um, but because of the fact that there were completely different levels at cross purposes, and you have, you know, the pious woman giving the model confession, oh, I didn't, I didn't keep to the Friday fast on Friday, uh, the last Friday, and, you know, um, and then contrasting that with his own confession, where, which is completely stripped of any deceit. He just sees himself as he really is. And I think that's why you do have those sort of false confessions or those um, confused confessions, should we say, all the way through the book because it's constantly pointing you to the fact that he will have to put himself at rights with God. You know, He will have to come to terms with what he's done before he, before he goes. So what do you have coming up for us novel-wise? What are you working on right now? I am working on another Father Gabriel. Um, I have Gabriel number four is coming out quite soon, coming out. It should be in April. It's uh, called Death of a Scholar. And he goes back to his old university to visit a friend from his student days. Um, and but you also learn a lot more about his past because if you remember, he, Gabriel's a late vacation. 
and but I'm also currently writing another one. And I've got a book for children about Maximilian Colby also coming Ooh. out in April because Ignatius Press have the vision series of saints and heroes of the Catholic faith. Um, so rewritten as almost as novels, you know, in, in a story form for younger readers. So I'm contributing to that, which I'm very excited about. It's a good series. Oh, that is exciting. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with St. Maximilian Kolbe, would you like to tell them just a little blurb about him? Yes, Maximilian Kolbe is best known as the Polish priest who gave his life for another prisoner in Auschwitz. It's the story of sacrifice that has, uh, well, it's been, it was known about at the time, it was widely talked about, even in the months after he died, but that is the the main thing that he is known about. It's this huge inspiration. But what I discovered writing about his life was that he had an extraordinary life too. He was a Franciscan, he was very keen on the media and using the new media of the time to spread the gospel. So he set up a newspaper. He built what turned out to be the biggest monastery in the world. He went to Japan. Um, He started a community in Nagasaki. So he was a very modern, both he was a both a, a wholly orthodox and a very, very modern and progressive priest who really wanted to convert the world. Uh, And this was very much his his story. And he he just let God lead him wherever he was needed, whether that was in Rome or in Japan or in Auschwitz. I have to say one of my favorite photos of Maximilian Kolbe is the one at his very messy desk. I love that photograph. It gives me great hope. I have an incredibly messy desk, but it doesn't come anywhere near Maximilian Colby's messy desk. I don't know how he could even sit at it. There are piles of paper everywhere on the floor. You know, it's wonderful. Um, and actually, the the story of Maximilian Colby, I think it it is well known, certainly in Poland and across Europe. But it's just such an engaging story because he was such an he was such an unbelievable character. He was the sort of man who could quite easily have been impossible to live with, actually, like a lot of saints. Um, there's very few men who would wake up one morning and think, Our Lady wants me to go to Japan. I don't speak Japanese. I have no money. I have no contacts in Japan, but I just know I have to go there. Um, and could persuade his superiors to let him go. What an incredibly <laughs> charismatic man! How did he manage to to pull that one off? You know, um, and but who who could just do that? Just draw people to him. And there are lots and lots of stories of you know where he, he was in very poor health for a lot of his life because you know he was from a very poor background and you know he two of his brothers died in infancy. He he was very ill with TB for a lot of his life, uh, where he, he'd be sent to a sanatorium and the doctors would be ordering him back to bed because he, oh, no, no, but that girl said she wanted me to anoint her and, and you know, he, he <laughs> wanted me to, to pray and all of the rest. And, you know, and, and it's funny because you can just see the way a very saintly character can be quite challenging to live with because they're always challenging you. They're always challenging everybody around them. Um, but it was an extraordinary man, extraordinary life, and really very, very inspiring. It gives me hope with the look of my desk too. And I, I, I have not quite accomplished his level of clutter on my desk, I don't think, but that might be because my desk isn't that big. No, 
I have, I have limited space. You don't want to see what's on my desk. <laughs> you don't want to see mine either. But you know what? It's 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 organized mess. I mm. know where the things I need are, and that's all that matters. Yes, absolutely. I, d- I don't like people rearranging my desk. Oh, I wouldn't be able to find anything. Please don't clean it. Please don't clean it. (laughs) Well, And I think this is what can happen when you're someone who constantly has new ideas that you need, you need a place for those ideas to incubate while you're working on them, but you still have the other 37 ideas that have already been incubating and are in various forms of germination. And so, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know, the chaos on the desk, it's probably reflective of the chaos inside, but you sort of know it'll all, it'll come to something in the end. You know, there's, there's some kind of method in the madness. Um, well, and with all those ideas, whether it's you or whether it's Maximilian Colby, it shows that the ideas, the experiences, your culture, all of these things, you, that we are so singular, so unrepeatable, and so unique and offering something entirely new to the world. Absolutely. And that's what's so beautiful about being a writer, about being, I mean, being anyone, we're all creators. We're all creators of some kind or other, whether you're a writer or an artist or a parent or whatever it is you're doing, you're always creating. And that is what is so wonderful. As you say, whatever you create, only you could have created it. And it's an accumulation of a coming together of so many factors that can only come together with you. And that, that in itself is awe-inspiring. It shows that we have a pretty creative God. <laughs> yes. And well, the idea, of, and I, I think as a, as a writer, I, mean, I, see, I see being a writer as a huge privilege in that sense, because you learn so much about what the creative process involves and I certainly, I often find, you know, I I get very attached to my characters, slightly weirdly at times, given that they are not in fact real. Um, They're real to me. They're like my family. You know, Father Gabriel means a lot to me, Um, you know, and, and, um, you know, I feel I know him so well. I know all his idiosyncrasies. It, It gives you a tiny sense of what it is like actually to, to be, to be creative. And you think, what must it be like? to be the ultimate creator, to have that intimate relationship with the whole of humanity individually, it's it's unimaginable. It's And it's why people like Richard Dawkins just say, oh, it's rubbish, it can't possibly be true because they can't get their heads around it. And yet I think as a writer, you can say, well, I can't get my head around it because I can't because I'm a human being and I have limitations, but I know it is possible that mm. I know for, for God it is possible and it's it's an extraordinary thought that love could be that complete wow that we are completely known and loved yeah or inspiring it is well I think we want to get to know you a little bit better in the rando round are you prepared <laughs> I am prepared for this yes you're you're putting <laughs> your life in the hands of the dice and so today would you like tie-dye or pink with mermaid sparkles I'll go with pink with mermaid sparkles mm, mermaid sparkles my my daughter would appreciate it <laughs> awesome I mean seriously let's be honest who doesn't like glitter mm Men or women, who doesn't like something sparkly and shiny? Come on. You're banning it. You're banning it in British nurseries. Glitter. What? 
it's not a, it's not environmentally friendly. It's got little bits of plastic. Oh, so, so there are some okay. nurseries that are banning it, believe it or not. But no, I love glitter. I love things that go spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let the dice take us to our hundred over caffeinated questions and see what we end up with. I don't know if I have any questions about glitter. Perhaps a glitter question needs to be incorporated. We've got twenty one. What's your most joyful childhood memory? Christmas. Always Christmas. Midnight Mass, taking the baby Jesus to be blessed. Coming home, there was sherry for the grown-ups, cake for the rest of us, and then waking up to smell the turkey as it was cooking Mm. and the stocking at the end of the bed. It's the, the one time in the year when the family's together. Yes, Christmas, always Oh, that's so beautiful. Let's see what else we end up with. Nine. Single digits. Mm -hmm. Ooh, what foreign languages do you speak? I have a reasonable command of Italian, um, but I'm very, very rusty, but I can make myself understood. I studied French at school, and I have sadly not as much Maltese as I would like, having, having grown up in Britain. Um, I also did a Duolingo course in Arabic last year. Oh, wow. Which was great fun. So a broad variety of languages for you. I'm interested in languages. Uh, I like languages too. And it's sad because living in the United States, most most native-born Americans are single language speakers. Yeah. That is true of Britain as well. We're very lazy about... I think it's just because English is so widely spoken, we're very lazy about learning languages. So I'm keen for my children to learn. And I'm just fascinated by language. I've, I've learned a bit of sign language. I've studied some Latin at school. You know, it's good for developing the mind. Yeah, my, my husband is Canadian and he actually did French immersion. And so he's he's a little rusty, but relatively fluent in French. Um and so we, you know, expose our kids to French and then we go to the Latin mass. So kids are exposed uh-huh. to Latin and we've done a little bit of Latin in our homeschool. And then my husband and I, both of our heritage is German. And so there's mm-hmm. German speakers on both sides of our family. So we we try to do the incorporation, but it's hard when they don't get any daily exposure. Yeah, And then when they travel, they will find that people want to practice their English. And it's difficult. I, I found um, I was in Rome before lockdown and I was so worried about speaking Italian that I pretended I was asleep in the, in the taxi at the back. So I wouldn't have to say anything. And, but then when I got to the conference center, it was in the Vatican and none of the nuns spoke any English and none of the delegates spoke any Italian. So I had to speak Italian because I was the only person who could communicate with the sisters and interpret. And by the end of the trip on the taxi on the way back to the airport, we chatted all the way to the airport because I'd, I'd lost my nervousness by then. <laughs> So it helps. Sometimes you just, you have to be thrown into a situation just to be able to get on with it. Oh, and get over ourselves and just Mm. let our minds and hearts work. All right. Now we've got 69. What would the title of your autobiography be? A Pelican in the Wilderness. (laughs) Something slightly absurd. (laughs) <laughs> but 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 with the with the with the scriptural background, 
I was going to say, are we swaying scriptural and like with the saints talking about the pelican plucking their breasts to feed their babies? Or are we swinging like Monty Python? I wasn't sure which direction it was going. Well, I love the I mean, I love the symbolism of the pelican, which in itself, I suppose, would be a bit pretentious as a, as a title for a memoir. But but I, it's just also so funny. I just I find pelicans funny as creatures that the the um the park, the London Park, St. James's, which was very close to where I used to work, has pelicans. So when I went to have my my lunch, I'd be near the pelicans. And whenever you were having a bad day, um, it was I'm going to go and feed the pelicans in St James's Park. And they're just they're funny creatures. I, I just they amuse me. There's something slightly slightly absurd about them. What do pelicans eat other than fish? I I don't know. So I'm asking the honest question. I don't know. We were told not the reference to feeding the pelicans was always ironic because there were always signs everywhere saying do not feed the pelicans <laughs> because <laughs> presumably they will try and eat anything. Oh, see, mm-hmm. you're just a rebel. Just a rebel yeah. at heart. All right, 35. What are you known for? Um, well, I've got a bit of a reputation as a writer, I suppose. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you meant? <laughs> well, and, or it could be something in your personal life. I mean, now I guess you're known for feeding pelicans, but... <laughs> I'm known for being a little bit quirky. My my children have politely said um, that I'm regarded as not normal, but that's fine. I think that goes for a lot of creative people. Yeah, so you're probably I, in very good company. So long as you don't cut your ear off or anything, I think quirky yeah. is all right. I, I'm pretty squeamish. I have no desire to mutilate myself. Um, and I also think that children get to an age where they always think their parents have something wrong with them. That's probably accurate. My kids are only five and eight, so we haven't reached the teen or preteen years. So, so far right now, mom is really cool. No, um, it's, it's good. Once they're teenagers, it's payback time for all the times they, you know, blurted something out in public or wet themselves and in church and stuff like that. Yeah, you, you, you definitely get your own back just by existing. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we've got eight. Where is your favourite place to read? Curled up on the sofa with my virtual fireplace. A virtual fireplace. Explain that for yes. me. Well, you see, I grew up in a really old house which had fireplaces. And so you could, in the winter, you would have an open fire with logs and, and things like that. And I've almost always lived in a house which was old enough to have open fires, but I now live in a a house that was built in the 50s where they blocked off the fireplace. So I have no roaring fire in the winter. So I go online and you can actually get film of fires burning, you know, on YouTube. Okay. If you put put fireplace and there it is and it crackles and there's lovely flames and you actually feel warm. Do you have a blankie too? I do or have just a the fireplace. No, no, I okay, do have so you- the blankie. No, I have to have the blankie. Yep. All right. And do you have a cup of tea as well? Usually hot chocolate when I'm when I'm right reading. Yeah. Is it the nice thick like the French hot chocolate? Oh yes. Oh. <laughs> Some sometimes sometimes with marshmallows on the top if I'm feeling indulgent. Mm. So when can I come over? And we'll do reading and, and, and we won't talk to each other and we'll have crackling fireplace, blankies and hot drinks. I would have to have coffee yeah. because. Oh, I do coffee. I have my little coffee machine. Okay. You can, you can choose your strength of coffee at you know, any time. 
Hop <laughs> on a plane. Let's do that. <laughs> oh, it does sound good, doesn't it? Well, and especially today, because um, I looked at our weather today and this morning with the wind chill, it was negative 14 degrees Celsius. Oh, that is cold. Yes, we've got uh, Storm Franklin huffing and puffing. It's, it's not that cold, but the wind the wind makes it feel very cold. You probably have a damper climate than we do here. We're kind of considered on the boundary of high desert, so we have a dry heat and a dry cold. But when it's a wet cold, oh. mm, it's it's much damper, and the heavy rain tends to follow the wind, um, and oh. uh, so which is great because it means our, our fences blow down, and then the puddles appear <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> but no, I like to be cozy, whatever the weather. I, I like to be cozy. Yes, yes, I agree with you. So I think we've come to my final question, which is, what gives you hope right now? My children, always, I think, seeing a new generation going up, growing up in, in a difficult world, but I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful for them and for, you know, the good lives I hope they will lead and the the good work I hope they will do. Um, I'm I'm impressed in with all the temptations surrounding the younger generation at how they're turning out. That is a cr- incredibly helpful, a hopeful image. Mm. Well, Fiorella, I've really enjoyed our time together. It's gone so if, fast. I know. <laughs> and if if someone wanted to follow your work and see your new and upcoming Father Gabriel mystery, where would be a good place to find you? Well, I have a website, fiorallademaria.com. I also have an author page on the Ignatius Press website, which they update regularly. But you can also follow me on Instagram. But you'll need to look up, um, you'll have to look up my name, Fiorella Nash, for Instagram. That's my married name. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic. It's been good fun. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.